Hi everyone. You know, sometimes life gets in the way of your best laid plans, and thanks to me getting a massive bout of the flu, followed hot on the heels by a loved one visiting from overseas, I don't have an interview-based episode for you this month, but I do have something I hope you'll still really enjoy. It's a narrated true story about a man who, a while back, did something that most of us think is impossible. It's an episode that belongs squarely in the true crime genre. Now, even though it is true crime, there's no violence and just a tiny bit of bad language. So here we go with this month's offering, which is called Dead Man Walking. To the casual passerby, it was a reasonably unremarkable scene. It was May 2005, and the Bay of Plenty had been hit by unseasonably wet weather. There was no doubt about it. Winter was about to descend on New Zealand. The iconic seaside town of Mount Monganui, however, was still a drawcard for visitors to the area, and on one particular Sunday in the middle of May, a middle-aged couple called Robert Motzel and Christine Newsom were enjoying their weekend away from Auckland with a stroll on the walking track on the mount. The pair had been dating just a few months, but were clearly besotted. In fact, not long before their trip away, Rob had told Christine he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. Christine confessed she felt the same, and they had excitedly agreed on September the 7th for their upcoming wedding. The pair were happy and relaxed as they wandered along the trail, taking in the breathtaking vistas of the Pacific Ocean, interspersed with a bird's-eye view of the Mount Monganui Peninsula with its long white sandy beaches on both sides. Suddenly, another couple loomed on the track, walking in the opposite direction, and as they passed each other, the men's eyes locked. After a few more paces, the man who'd just passed them by doubled back, Staring at Robert intently, he said, Hello, is that really you? Without batting an eyelid, Robert replied, Of course, but look, it's not convenient to talk now. I'll call you in a few days. A few steps on, he explained to his fiancée, That was just an old friend. The whole exchange lasted just a matter of seconds, but it was all the proof anyone ever needed that a few seconds is all it takes to unravel a life. Because, as it turned out, Robert Motzel was not Robert Motzel at all. His real name was Harry Gordon. The man he'd just bumped into was his brother, and the reason his brother was so surprised to see him was that four years earlier, Harry had been declared dead. The story of how Harry Bentley Gordon staged his own death and almost got away with it is a movie script just waiting to be written. It all started in the year 2000. New Zealand-born Harry was a wealthy businessman living in Sydney with his wife Sheila. Their daughter Josephine was 25 and a teacher, and she also lived in Sydney. Harry owned five companies which had major engineering contracts, but in 2000 he was in big trouble on several fronts. His home life was stressed when, to his surprise, he discovered he had another daughter who up until then he had no idea existed, the product of a teenage love affair. 
Meanwhile, on the business front, he was caught up in the mishandling of 20 tonnes of asbestos and a nasty workers' compensation case. But most of all, he was plagued by a money-making scheme he'd become involved in that turned out to be a scam run by a violent Ukrainian gang. He was being pressed to give them hundreds of thousands of dollars and had already suffered a brutal beating. He feared the next time it would be fatal. In February 2000, Harry took out a life insurance policy and two months later he increased its value to 3.5 million Australian dollars. Then, two months after that, in June 2000, with seemingly no way out of his ever-growing list of problems, Harry Gordon put his escape plan into action. The 51-year-old took a day trip up the New South Wales coastline in his 4.8 metre fibreglass runabout and carefully staged the scene to make it look like he had fallen overboard. He left empty champagne bottles lying around the boat and his wallet with all his identity and credit cards and his mobile phone on the dashboard. Then he climbed into an inflatable rubber dinghy and disappeared into the moonless night hoping his ruse would result in the assumption that he had gone to a watery grave. In those nerve-wracking few hours of his escape, he found himself perched in the dinghy in open sea, wet through, shivering and wondering why, especially on a dark night, he hadn't thought to pack a chart to guide him back to land. You really didn't think this through, did you? He chided himself. You are a very, very foolish man. Finally he found the spot, close to a beach house he owned, where he had previously parked a V-dub camper van. It was stashed with a few items of clothing and a bag containing 100,000 Australian dollars. After coming ashore, he deflated the rubber dinghy and stuffed it into the van, together with the outboard motor. Then he turned the key in the ignition and fired the V-dub to life. Amazingly, Harry Gordon's carefully thought-out fake death had gone to plan. Hardly daring to believe he'd gone through with his outlandish ruse, he drove to the outskirts of Sydney where he picked up some fish and chips and a bottle or two of champagne. He parked the van at Palm Beach and devoured his first meal as a dead man. Next, he found a camping ground on Sydney's North Shore, it was midwinter, so there were very few people around, and those who were staying took no notice of a lone 50-something man in a camper van. The next morning, he opened the newspaper to read a large article about his disappearance. Harry's wife Sheila was on holiday in Egypt at the time of his so-called accident. His daughter Josephine, whom he had called from the boat just before he disappeared, had reported him missing. And when an oyster farmer had found his boat beached on rocks the morning after his disappearance, an intensive search of the waterways had been launched. The runabout had a smashed windscreen, the throttle was still on full, and the fuel tank was empty. The media made much of the fact he was wealthy, and that three empty bottles of bubbly had been found strewn around his abandoned boat. The newspapers immediately dubbed him Champagne Harry. It was the first of an avalanche of stories dining out on the mysterious drowning of millionaire Harry Gordon. 
Every time a story appeared, so did a photograph, but despite moving around various camping grounds in his V-dub van, nobody recognised him. Two days after he went missing, Harry's daughter Josephine wrote a somewhat unorthodox letter to his business colleagues saying it was her sad duty to report her father had perished in a boating misadventure at Port Stephens. She wrote to the employees of the engineering companies he ran, saying, It was somehow appropriate that he should die driving flat out into the dark unknown, with a glass of champagne in his hand, without a hint of humility or self-doubt. After dining rather well in a local seafood restaurant, he was returning to our home in the dark at speed in his powerboat, and during that journey he has parted company with his boat. Our guess is that in a characteristic gesture of excessive reciprocity, he is allowing the fish to dine on him. But instead of feeding the fishes, Harry was actually in fine fettle. After a few weeks moving around camping grounds, he rented a humble flat in the city's eastern suburbs, where most of the other tenants were Middle Eastern and Asian. He assumed the fake name Bill Tear, and no one paid him much attention. So much so, Harry started to relax. He bought himself a bicycle to get around on and went to the public swimming pool every day to keep his fitness up. He tried his hand at writing poetry and short stories and visited the art gallery regularly. He also started going to the cinema and it was there that he had his first encounter with someone who recognised him. When the acquaintance confronted him, he replied that he was in a witness protection programme and that he would appreciate it if she kept her lips sealed. It was a matter of life and death. To his great surprise, she did, and he used the same story successfully on a handful of other people who recognised him. In August 2000, two months after supposedly drowning in a champagne haze, Harry Gordon made contact with his wife, Sheila, who was still living in the couple's inner city terrace house. Under the cover of darkness, he arrived at the house and waited patiently in the laundry for Sheila to wake up in the morning. She was gobsmacked to see him, and more than a little angry to discover she had been duped. The pair met surreptitiously several times over the next few days and weeks, discussing what Harry was going to do in the future. One thing was certain, he couldn't stay in Sydney or even Australia for much longer. The chances of him being caught were way too high. In the end, they decided Harry should buy a boat and sail from Darwin on the northern coast of Australia to Indonesia, where it was unlikely it would be noticed that his passport belonged to a dead man. The plan was that at some stage, Sheila would slowly sell up the couple's assets and join Harry for a new life overseas. But first, he had to wait for his passport to be returned. Sheila had been required to give it to the family solicitor for a coroner's court hearing. Just outright asking for it back would have waved more than a few red flags. They had to wait for the grinding wheels of bureaucracy to turn at its own pace. During this time, Harry traded in his camper van for an old Volvo and started planning for his voyage to Indonesia by studying nautical maps. 
When the six-month lease on his small flat expired, he moved into a room in a run-down old hotel in the seaside suburb of Manly. It was a place best described as rich in faded splendour, and mostly inhabited by an assortment of misfits from all walks of life. Despite his face appearing in the newspaper for weeks on end, no one batted an eyelid when Harry ate his meals in the cheaply priced dining room of the establishment several times a week. Still calling himself Bill Tear, he explained to his fellow residents that he was an unsuccessful author forced to live on a meagre income. He did little to disguise his appearance and was effectively hiding in plain sight. But as the coronial inquest into his disappearance grew closer, he anticipated his face would, once again, soon be flashed through the media, and he knew he couldn't continue to run the risk of being discovered. He grew a moustache, started wearing spectacles, donned a hat for his daily constitutionals along the manly waterfront, and withdrew as much as possible from social interactions, including in the congenial atmosphere of the hotel dining room. When the inquest was finally held, a year after his so-called accident, he was astounded to learn in the newspaper that the coroner had ruled that his boat had struck a navigational marker and that he had been thrown from the vessel and drowned. He was officially deceased, complete with death certificate. He relaxed and started going out in public again. Soon after, the family solicitor lodged a claim for the $3.5 million life insurance. By this time, Sheila and Harry's daughter, Josephine, had given birth to a baby boy. She had met her baby daddy soon after Harry's fake death and, according to Harry, had no idea that her father was actually still alive and kicking. Eventually, Sheila organised a reunion at the family's holiday home at North Arm Cove in the Hunter region of New South Wales. It was the first time Josephine had seen Harry since he disappeared. It was also Harry's first introduction to Josephine's partner and his first grandchild. Not long after, still living in his shabby hotel room, Harry was befriended by a fellow resident called Rob. In what seemed like a case of pure serendipity, it turned out Rob was a taxi driver from Darwin and had a lot of experience sailing to and around Indonesia. Careful not to let his true identity slip, Harry explained that he needed advice on sailing from Darwin to Indonesia, possibly without a passport. After discussing all the pros and cons, Rob had an interesting proposition. It would cost Harry at least 20,000 Australian dollars and a lot of anxiety to leave the country that way. Instead, he could use Rob's passport for the same amount of money and for far less hassle. At first, Harry thought the plan wouldn't work. For starters, he had brown eyes and Rob's were blue. But one by one, he realised the obstacles involved in passing himself off as Rob were easily overcome. Coloured contact lenses were easy to come by, and Rob's passport, containing a photograph that was more than 10 years old, had expired. It would be easy enough to put the changes in his appearance down to ageing. Also on the plus side, he and Rob 
were of similar height, age and build. Almost immediately, they put the plan into action. Harry changed hotels to avoid anyone noticing his metamorphosis. He grew a beard and a moustache and purchased some blue contacts. Then he dyed his hair, toned down his complexion with a few dabs of makeup and had some passport photographs taken at a chemist. He used Rob's identification cards to meet with a justice of the peace who confirmed his passport photo as a good likeness and signed his passport application. In July 2001, just over a year since his disappearance, Harry Bentley Gordon, dead man walking, strolled through the immigration at Sydney International Airport without anyone batting an eyelid. With a valid passport, albeit a fake one, there was no need to continue with his plan to escape to Indonesia. Harry could go wherever in the world he chose, and two long-haul flights later, he landed in Frankfurt, Germany. It was the start of a brand new life. After spending a few days enjoying the sights, Harry purchased a second-hand Mercedes and drove through southern Germany and France and finally into the north of Spain. With just $20,000 left of his original $100,000, he knew he had to begin economising until Sheila could liquidate their assets and join him for their new life. In the commercial and industrial hub of Sabadell, he came to a stop and rented a one-bedroom apartment above a tuppers bar. It was here that Harry Gordon, a.k.a. Bill Tear, a.k.a. Robert Motzel, put down roots for the next few months. While his choice of new home was random, it turned out to be inspired. With few sightseeing attractions, Sabadell was off the tourist trail, and yet it was just 20 kilometres from the jewel of Catalonia, Barcelona, with its cathedrals, galleries, vibrant cafe life, and striking Gaudi architecture. Although he spoke little Spanish, he made friends with some of the locals and spent time exploring Barcelona, the local countryside and coastline. During his time in Spain, Harry was visited by both Josephine and Sheila. Two things, however, eventually forced him to leave his idyllic new home. Firstly, his daughter's relationship had broken down and she wanted to bring her young son and live with him. And that led on to problem number two. He was fast running out of money. In March 2002, Harry, together with Josephine and his grandson, went to live in England. Harry found a job in a potato crisp warehouse and then at a vegetable processing factory, while Josephine secured a teaching position. He believed it was all a temporary measure, as Sheila was eventually going to join him with their liquidised assets. A visit from Sheila a few months later, however, turned everything on its ear. She'd only come, she said, to tell him face to face that their relationship was over. Harry pleaded with her to stay and work out their issues, but she responded, Harry, it's over. You are the one who fucked up our marriage. I have found someone else to spend my life with. 
a normal person. I just don't need any more of your shit. Their life together was over. Soon after, Josephine and her young son returned to Australia and Harry decided to start over again in New Zealand, the homeland he left in the mid-1970s, where he didn't need to worry about work visas, even with his false Australian passport. He didn't know it, but it was a move that would ultimately be his undoing. Soon after arriving in New Zealand in August 2002, Harry, still living as Rob Motzel, landed a job at a scrap metal merchant in Auckland and was just making ends meet. By early 2003, he stepped things up a few notches and was employed in a sales role for Versatile Buildings Limited. He returned briefly to England in 2003 before arriving back in New Zealand in March 2004 to resume his sales role for the housing company and to build a new life. Josephine and her son joined him. Just before Christmas 2004, Harry met a woman called Christine who was looking for a little house to go on the front of a property she owned on Auckland's North Shore. Once their business dealings were out of the way, they began dating, and it wasn't long before they were head over heels in love. Although concerned about the fact he was in many ways living a lie, Harry confessed to Christine that Rob was not his real name. He told her his real name, and threw in for good measure the piece of information that had always served him well in the past, that he was in a witness protection program. Christine accepted Harry's story and his proposal of marriage, and they began planning their wedding. It wasn't long after that Harry encountered his brother Michael on the Mount Monganui walking track. After the unscheduled meeting, Harry got in touch, as promised, with his brother. The pair met up a few times, and his brother appeared to be pleased that Harry was indeed alive. Harry explained the reasons for faking his death and his hopes for the future. After that meeting, his brother then contacted Sheila to tell her he knew the truth about Harry. He urged her to go to the police to report that he was still alive. In August 2005, Sheila did go to the police, giving them Harry's home and business addresses in New Zealand. And behind the scenes, Harry became the object of a special Australian police investigation, codenamed Strike Force Rebellion. During the weeks following, Harry was blissfully unaware he'd been dobbed in. He and Christine tied the knot in a small wedding at a hunting lodge in Waimauku, northwest of Auckland, on September the 7th, 2005. The happy couple went on to enjoy an idyllic honeymoon in Rarotonga, but the fun came to an end when they tried to board their plane back to New Zealand a few days later. Due to information lodged by the Australian police, his passport in the name of Robert Motzel was indicated as stolen on the Air New Zealand computer. He was not allowed on the plane and his passport was confiscated. Harry persuaded Christine to return to Auckland without him. He also insisted on having his passport returned to him on the basis that the airline was not a law enforcement agency and that they had no right to hold it. The following day, he boarded a flight from Rarotonga to Nandi with a Fijian airline, whose computer system was not linked to the Australian or New Zealand immigration departments. 
From Fiji, he contacted his brother and asked him to access his personal belongings in Auckland and sent him his real birth certificate and also an expired passport in his real name. He then reported to the Fijian police under his own name, Harry Bentley Gordon, that his passport had been stolen. Using his identity papers sent from Auckland, he applied for and received a temporary Australian passport under his real name. On the 3rd of October, Harry returned to New Zealand, pleasantly surprised that no alarm bells went off when he passed through immigration at Auckland Airport. By then, his new wife had done some research and for the first time, she had a much better idea of who the funny self-deprecating man she'd married really was. A month later, Harry flew to Sydney, intending to visit Sheila and seek legal advice on what laws they had broken and how to go about untangling their web of lies. Instead, on arrival at Sydney Airport, he was arrested. Charged with conspiracy to defraud, obtaining financial advantage by deception, public mischief and passport offences, he was denied bail. He called Christine from the police station to tell her he wouldn't be home in a couple of days as planned. How could he? He was in jail. She was not impressed. Throughout the years of his fake death, the company with which he had taken out $3.5 million worth of life insurance had refused to pay on the basis there was no body. But conspiring to defraud an insurance company, even if no money is paid out, is still a serious crime. On November 15, 2005, Harry pleaded guilty to all the charges against him and went on to serve almost 12 months in a low-security prison farm. Meanwhile, the police sent him a bill for $22,500 for the air and sea search they conducted when he went missing. Sheila Gordon was charged in November 2005 with conspiracy to defraud the insurance company and for trying to obtain benefit by deception. She served five months on home detention. Josephine was charged with conspiracy to defraud and perjury, but the charges were later dropped due to lack of evidence against her. Harry's siblings were shocked to discover their brother, for whom they'd grieved five years earlier, was alive and well and living in New Zealand. His older brother Mike, who lived in Tauranga, said he did not believe the money from his life insurance policy was the primary reason for Harry's disappearance. He said at the time, he was loaded, he had plenty. Whatever journey he's been on, we've got our brother we thought we'd lost. It was five months after Harry's arrest before Christine flew to Sydney to see him in prison, seeking a full explanation. By then she had delved deep into his real life and she asked a series of questions to test his honesty. She decided to give him another chance and took him back after his prison sentence was over. While he was serving time in jail, he wrote a memoir entitled The Harry Gordon Story, How I Faked My Own Death. The cover image is of a dishevelled looking Harry being led away in handcuffs by two policemen. In 2007, in a flurry of interviews to publicise his book, Harry said he was back in business, dividing his time between property development in New Zealand and Australia. 
Christine often travelled with him, and while he had to start building his life again from scratch, he told a newspaper reporter lightly, I've never been short of money in my life. It's too inconvenient. Once I lean into the harness, it's not too hard to make a few thousand a week. One of the last times he spoke to the media, Harry said he was enjoying his new above-the-board life. My motto, he said, is, there's nothing in life that can't be fixed. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, I highly recommend you seek out a copy of Harry's book, How I Faked My Own Death. Among other sources, we used this book in researching this episode, and a lot more happened to Harry during his five years as a dead man than would fit into this podcast. It's published by New Holland Australia, and it's a great read. listening to The Lip, a podcast of extraordinary true stories. I'm Megan McChesney. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank a few more people for their support of The Lip. I know I often use the pronoun we when talking about putting this podcast together. I guess I think saying I sounds a bit lonely, or maybe a bit self-aggrandizing. I don't know. But the truth is, there's only me. I do all aspects of producing this little indie number, from finding the story subjects, travelling to their town to interview them, right through to the editing side of things. So any feedback I get from you guys, the listeners, really matters to me. It keeps me going, really, and stops me feeling like I'm working in some kind of a vacuum. I'm not enough of a social media sleuth to keep tabs on everyone who shouts out about the lip, but I thought I would mention the names of a few people whose support I have noticed. So thank you to Sandra Teeling, Sean Bater, Joe Booth, Carly Rankin-Yates, Tamara Kohler, Melanie Gibson, Joe Wayne, Sarah Stewart, Fiona Barber and Jackie Loetz-Harver. And if you've been shouting out about the lip and I haven't mentioned you, please be assured I really do appreciate your support. Now, if you're new to the lip, you can check out all the episodes back to number one on the website, thelippodcast.kiwi. It's also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts. And each month, it's also featured on the current affairs and culture website, noted.co.nz. That's it from me. See you next month. I'm not the man that I once was.